Turn with me then in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. It's page 1812, 1812. We're going to read the first 14 verses. We'll be considering this morning the verses 6 through 9 and then Lord willing next Sunday the verses 10 through 14. Having already seen the verses 1 through 5, those verses that begin so starkly, so graphically. Galatians 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear the word of God. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Now the words of our text. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who, are, who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And these, are the text, these following verses will be for next Sunday. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Thus for the reading of God's holy word. May he now bless that word to us. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, do you ever feel uh, as though the answer, faith, is a bit of a cop-out? Imagine, imagine someone asking you something about what you believe, and you try to answer to the best of your ability, but eventually they say something like, well, how do you know that any of this is true? Your only re- recourse is to say, I just believe it. Maybe you're quoting the Scriptures. Maybe you're reciting passages. See, what this is what the Bible says. And they say, well, how do you know the, the Bible's the Word of God? And you just, you're left with, I believe it. Or imagine trying to encourage a fellow believer, someone going through a tough time and offering them the encouragement of God's promises found in God's Word and echoed in the baptismal form that God works all things for the good of those who love Him. And now that burdened and broken brother or sister says to you, but how can you be sure? All you can say is, well, I, I believe it. And doesn't that feel a bit cheap at times? Aren't we then just saying, I don't have an answer. I just close my eyes and hope it's true. And isn't, is that enough for any of us? My guess is we know that it's not. Maybe that doesn't seem fair to say. After all, we are the sola fide people the by faith alone church. 
Surely if there's anybody, any group of people that values the place and priority of faith in the Christian life, it's us. And that's certainly true and hopefully true. And that doesn't mean that we don't struggle with the same issues the church has been struggling with throughout her history since the very beginning. It's easy to look back on the history of the church and wonder why so many people got the faith wrong so many times as they clearly did. Even now, it's easy for us to look down at fellow believers in the faith, fellow Christians that seem to get their doctrine wrong and things inside out and backwards. And to tell ourselves that we're better than them, that we, we have it right, they have it wrong. But the truth is, we're all born with a fallen nature. And that same nature that lives in all of us leads us astray in the same way. Our sinful selves don't want us to stand in the wonderful comfort of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our sinful selves don't want us to be free of the power and guilt of sin. They don't want us to to run in the joy of the Lord and to be renewed in our strength. They don't want us to walk confidently in all of life, in all of the navigating of the challenges of life, in the comfort and confidence of life's promise in Jesus Christ. Our sinful selves, rather, would have us be broken down in some ditch somewhere, discouraged and doubtful and wondering about this Christianity and its empty promises and cheap faith. That's why even in our own lives, the idea that we can earn our own salvation that we can roll up our sleeves and just try a little harder, the idea that we know is wrong and terrible and contrary to the Word of God still finds expression, practically speaking, in all of our lives. We all know it's wrong. We all live like it's right. We worry about what God's going to do to us when we make some big mistake. We tell ourselves to be careful what we pray for because God might just give it to us and it probably won't be something good. We find it easy to judge others for their failures. And we're not too keen on admitting our own flaws. In a battle of wills, in a broken relationship, we point the finger instead of humbling ourselves and asking for grace. In so many subtle and less than subtle ways, we think that our membership in the club of the redeemed is probably due, at least in part, to how good we live our lives. And that's a more compelling perspective for us than the one presented on the pages of Scripture. When asked how you think that this can be true, we wish we could say, well, because it works, you see. Because if you do this, that, and the next thing, if you go to church, if you say the sinner's prayer, if you give in the offering, well, then amazing things happen to you from God. When someone asks, how do you know? We want to be able to say, well, I was once in your situation too, you see, and here are the five steps that freed me from this misery. Isn't that that so? Isn't that why the self-help section, not only in the public a bookstore, but in the Christian bookstore is the one populated with the most books. Isn't that why Tony Robbins, the Tony Robbinses of this world, make a lot of money telling people what to do? And isn't that exactly why we want our sermons to be rich with application? Tell us what to do, pastor. Don't tell us what to think. Don't tell us what to see. Don't tell us what to believe. Tell us what to do, you see. Tell us how to achieve the good life. 
And then we come to a passage like the one we have before us in Galatians 3 and the verses 6 through 9, one that begins, consider Abraham. Paul calls his original readers to consider Abraham precisely because here is the linchpin, here is the issue between Paul and the Judaizers. Remember these heretics that have come into these churches and have told these Christians, you have to do something to be saved. It's not enough to believe, you have to do something as well. And Paul says, right, let's have a conversation then about what the Bible teaches all the way from the beginning of the Jewish nation. It is a Gentile group of churches that are being led astray by a Jewish good group of people. Paul says, right, let's go back to the Jewish beginning. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of all Jews, the father of all Christians as well. But the Jews would have identified as sons of Abraham. They would have said, he's our father. Not Moses, interestingly enough. Moses, who had given the law. Moses, who had given the Ten Commandments. No, they were the sons of Abraham. So Paul says, right, let's go back to Father Abraham and see what we learn about him, shall we? And what made Abraham so special? Well, the Judaizers said that what made Abraham so special was that he obeyed. God called him when he was in Ur and he left. God commanded him to surrender everything and Abraham obeyed. Abraham did the good, did the right, and that made him special. Yet nowhere in the Word of God do we ever find the Lord saying, Abraham, you have obeyed me, and so I consider you righteous. But we do certainly read that Abraham believed God, and he counted or credited to him as righteousness. That's what God says in, in Genesis 15, verse 6. The Bible, the very inspired Word of God that tells the story of Israel's beginning, holds up Abraham before us, not as an example of righteousness in himself, good works and good abilities. In fact, the story of Abraham is one littered with his failures, of his doubts and uncertainty of his mistakes. Think of how many times he had problems with respect to Sarah. He sold her out twice. Think about the story of Hagar. Think about all of the ways in which Abraham failed. Oh no, the Bible holds up to us, yes, the good, but also the ugly, and says that neither is what defines Abraham at all. What defines Abraham is faith, his trust, his acceptance of who God is. Maybe, maybe that's what we need to recognize and understand about Abram's faith. After all, his faith was more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of certain truths. He didn't just say, well, this is real. I believe it. I, I know it is. No, Abram had a relationship with his God, a God who spoke to him, a God who led and guided him, a God who made and ruled over him. And when God said, Abraham, look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at how I accomplish my purposes with power and glory. Then Abraham trusted Him. Abraham believed God. Believe the God of power. Believe the God of faithfulness. Believe the God of grace and mercy. Believe the God of His Word. He saw the night sky and he heard the voice of his God and rested not in Abraham's hope, not in Abraham's ideas, not in Abraham's thinking, 
but in the God who ministered to him. That was Abraham's faith. Abraham trusted God. Now, from that flowed his obedience, to be sure. To trust and not obey is a contradiction. But it was the faith of Abraham that was credited to him as righteousness. That is, that God counted to Abraham's account. Think about in heaven, God, if you will, having a book with your name on it, a ledger that includes all of the sins you've ever committed and will ever commit. And the consequence, the debt that is owed because of this, the debt would be enormous, of course, way beyond anything any of us could ever pay back. And yet on the other side, on the credit side of things, God credits righteousness. God declares Abraham without sin, without having ever been a sinner. He declares Abraham free from the power and the guilt of sin. And he does this because Abraham believed. Now, that doesn't mean, you should understand, that Abraham's act of faith was so impressive to God that he rewarded him with this unbelievable gift. We will soon discover that even Abraham's faith isn't all that impressive. But what it does mean is that God chose the the act of faith, the means of faith, as the way in which he would pour righteousness into the life of his servant, the righteousness of Christ. Faith, you might say, is like a funnel. The funnel isn't all that important, is it? When you pour oil into your engine, the funnel, it helps. But it's not the funnel that you care about. It is the oil that you want. It is the righteousness of Christ that we want in our lives. It is through faith, by God's wisdom, by God's decision. It is through faith that that righteousness is given to us. And so Paul takes his readers all the way back to Abram and says, let's talk about Abram. These Judaizers want to talk about being sons of Abram. Well, let me tell you about Abram. He's a man of faith. He's not, first of all, a man of obedience that he should impress us. Indeed, how could he? How could anyone impress God with their good works? God who is righteous in every respect. God who allows no wickedness in His presence. God who condemns sin in all of its forms, in the most basic form. The fact that we are born sinners is enough to condemn us eternally. But the Lord says there is a way. It is the way of Christ. It is the way of the sacrifice. It is the way of the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And it is resting in what He's done. That's what faith is. Faith sees what Jesus has done on the cross and in the empty tomb. And faith says, I trust Him. I trust His work on my behalf. I trust His grace towards me. That when I stand before the Lord, even as we've just sung, it will be for the sake, it will be the rock of ages who will plead for me. Faith is the identifying mark of Father Abraham. And therefore surely must be the identifying mark of all of his children. Although is that so? Is it indeed the case that the children of Abraham should live also by faith? 
Or maybe we should ask it slightly differently. Is it possible that there is a way of salvation by faith for one group of people and maybe a way of salvation by works for another group of people? That's effectively, isn't it, what some people believe? Sometimes the the categories are switched, ironically. Sometimes people say that Jews are saved by obeying the law. That's why God gave them all those rules, all those Old Testament laws and sacrifices and all that stuff they were supposed to do. Jews had to keep all of those rules, and if they kept them, that would get them saved. But Gentiles, it is said, now God began a different work, a church work, a work of grace by, by faith and grace. And of course, it could be of the other way around. It could be that Jews are saved by faith and Gentiles have to prove their mettle before they get the blessing of God's grace. The point is, are there two ways that we get saved? Now you say, of course not. What a foolish thing. Not so quick. After all, sometimes aren't we tempted to think this very way? Think of the new Christian the, new, the guest that comes among us, the, the seeking and searching believer who wants to understand more deeply the things of the Lord. Or think of the profession of faith students that were just before the council this past week. Isn't it easy for us to say to these seeking, searching, these drawing near individuals, oh, okay, well, wait, wait now to say, well, you've got to prove your worth. I mean, you say you believe in Jesus Christ, but eh, we're going to raise the bar a little bit. Come on, jump over this high bar and we'll believe that you are indeed saved. Others. What about others? What about when we look at others and those that especially do us wrong, those that maybe we struggle with in our own lives? Oh, you know we're fallen and frail and we need forgiveness. But you see, when somebody hurts me, They'd better prove their worth. They'd better grovel on their knees. They'd better show that they are deserving of my grace. Do not imagine that such arrogance and pride does not live among us. What about us as parents and our children? Are we teaching them to believe in Jesus Christ? Or are we saying that to be a Christian, you do, 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 do. Do our children know that they are identified by faith in Jesus Christ? And that from faith flows the obedience of gratitude and love? Do they understand? There is a place always, of course, for proving our gratitude, for proving our testimony of love for God in Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand that. But it is easy even for us in the church to switch the order so that you testify first and then I accept you. Now the Scripture certainly expects all members of God's household to live by faith. And the Scriptures expects all people who have faith to live in gratitude before the Lord. But what is our expectation? What is our emphasis? Where do we focus on In our relationship with others, do we say, do you know Jesus Christ? Or do we say, do you do things right? 
From the beginning, it has been faith in Jesus Christ that the Lord has desired from all His people. Indeed, even in Abraham, beginning with Abraham, God said that the promise of salvation would extend globally, including not just the genetic, biological children of Abraham, the covenantal, we should say, children of Abraham, but all of those in the world would eventually be blessed through Abraham, through the father of faith. Which means you understand that whatever the Lord was doing with Abraham and with his children thereafter, uniquely blessing and guiding them, calling them to repentance and faith, he always did it with an eye to the world. Indeed, Israel was this glorious witness and light that was intended to exist for all the world. When the Lord put them in Palestine and Canaan, he put them at a crossroads of all the nations so that they would come to see what God was doing in Israel. God always has a global eye, an eye for all men. We saw this when we studied the book of Exodus, how in the book of Exodus, God is evangelizing the world. He's saying, repent and believe. Indeed, this is what Jesus said to the apostles, go into all the world and bring the gospel of faith to everyone. So that from the beginning, there has only ever been one way of salvation. And that way is not by being really good. It is by being, by believing, by having faith in Jesus Christ. We sometimes get a little wonky on that with Old Testament saints, to be sure, because we hear God calling Abram to faith. And you think, well, it can't be faith in Jesus because Jesus hasn't come yet. But he was calling Abram to faith in Jesus, to faith in the coming Messiah, just as we have faith in the Messiah who has come. He calls us all to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Which means that this, this surrender, this, this act of trust, this confession of, of, of total confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ, this idea of faith as the central quality of the Christian church is not something that we have latched onto as a particular group of people because we couldn't explain things, because we couldn't answer all of the tough questions the world had to ask us, because we just said, well, at some point you have to close your eyes and hope it's true. Faith has always been, from the very beginning, an act of faith in the one who acts, who blesses, who redeems. It's always been a trusting of a person, and that has always been the way that God has wanted us to respond to his saving grace on our behalf. The gospel is not, here's what you do, here's what you need to do in order to be saved. Rather, the gospel is, behold your God. See what He's done. See how great and glorious He is to you in your sin and in your misery. And faith is then the right response to that revelation. It's not a cop-out. It's exactly the opposite. It's not eyes closed. It's eyes opened. It's hearts alive, not dead. So that when someone were to ask us, how do you know any of this is true? Our answer should be, Let me tell you about my God and what He's done. And let me tell you how great He is, how rich His blessing to me is. Indeed, that is the promise, isn't it? As our text concludes, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. 
Again, what identifies children of Abraham? Is it their ability to say, I am genetically connected to him, I'm a Jew? Is it some act of spiritual worship, some circumcision or dietary law or ceremonial law? In the end, it's not any of those things. It is that like Abraham, we surrender ourselves into the hands of a gracious, kind, and loving Father. All of those things, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, all of those things were teaching tools, pictures or lessons, Sunday school lessons that were to lead the Israelites to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The demand was always that God's people trust in the God who had promised him or promised them his Messiah. Obedience was the blessed consequence, the commitment that flowed out of belief in the Lord who saves in the light of His grace. And that meant you understand that God's people were truly blessed because they were given insight, they were given understanding, they were given a way to live in fellowship with God and with each other. Was going to the temple in the Old Testament an important thing to do? Was getting circumcised in the Old Testament an important thing to do? Of course it was. Yes, very much so. Indeed, it signified and sealed the blessing of God's grace to the people. It allowed them to experience and enjoy the wonder of God's love for them. But those things in and of themselves were worth nothing. Lots of nations circumcised their boys. That didn't make them children of Abraham. No, it was faith. It was faith in the end. But it is through that faith that the blessing of God pours out into our lives so that more and more we experience His hand upon us, His preserving and protecting care towards us. Those who are believers are blessed and they are blessed in very tangible, in very wonderful ways. A peace that passes understanding, a strength that is renewed like eagles. We can go on and on throughout the Old Testament and recount all of the many ways in which the Lord promises to bestow upon those who trust in Him a rich and wonderful blessing. They find their refuge in Him. They find their strength in Him. They find their life in Him. And indeed, ultimately, the richest blessings that we receive because of faith in Jesus Christ are not temporary, are not worldly blessings at all. Those are indeed markers of God's goodness and grace to us. When we have stable homes, when we have successful businesses, when we have full bellies and warm clothes and safe homes, when we have peace and prosperity within our world, then we are indeed reminded of how good God is to those who trust in Him. Yet you could remove all of those things and we as the church would remain the most blessed people on the face of the earth. Blessed precisely because we have the favor of our Heavenly Father who smiles upon us in this life. Who is pleased with us, not by virtue of anything we've done, but by virtue of the fact that He is our Father in Jesus Christ. Through Christ, the blessing of God's favor rests upon us so that we may face the future without any uncertainty that indeed we can endure the most harsh and demanding of trials in the confidence that the trial will never win, that the cancer will never win, that the brokenness will never win, that the tears will one day stop flowing. 
that indeed we will stand upon the face of this earth one day in the flesh, we and not another in our bodies, beholding the glorious Redeemer that has saved us by His sacrifice on the cross. We have a future and a hope that is secure in the midst of instability and insecurity within this world. None of us is able to stand against the trials and temptations of this world. None of us is able to endure against all of the things that we must experience as God's people. We go through life broken, hobbling, stumbling, faltering as we slowly make progress in our walk with the Lord. But we know that the favor of the Lord rests upon us. And that favor has, for, has secured for us eternity, an eternal blessedness which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, but that God has prepared for those who love Him. We have a future and a hope. And we can identify that blessedness in the experiences we have each and every day as they carry us and equip us for grateful living and for obedient service to the God who has purchased us in His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that becomes for us then the motivation for being a witness to the world that lives in such hopelessness and helplessness. I don't think we appreciate just how blessed we are. We take it for granted because it is so common. But when we have the opportunity, you speak to our police officers, speak to our nurses, speak to those members of our congregation that regularly and daily interact with the world, with those that don't know Jesus Christ, that are living under the power and the guilt of sin. Talk to the social workers. Talk to those that deal in psychiatric problems. And you will discover that outside of these lovely, blessed, and wonderful walls is a lot of heartache, a lot of grief, a lot of pain, and a lot of brokenness. And we have an opportunity to bring to that mess and misery the only balm that can bring hope and comfort and grace. We have the answer for the world's problems. Well, the world doesn't know that we do. They don't even think that we do. They can see us Christians as a strange group of people. And sometimes we have a hard time because of that. We don't really want to share the faith. We don't want to really speak of the things of the Lord. It's also very humiliating. In a culture where I, our identity is shaped by our success, our faith demands, first of all, that we admit we're a failure and that someone else had to do it for us. Everything around us, everything within us resists admitting our utter dependence upon the Lord. But here's the thing, those who have faith are blessed along with the man of faith, Abraham, our father, so that we are identified by this faith, that we are blessed by this faith, that we are redeemed by this faith in Jesus Christ. And why should we then be ashamed of it? Why then should it seem to us to be a cop-out? Why should it be something we're embarrassed about? It should instead be the thing that we are most amazed by, that God should save poor sinners such as we because we have believed upon the one who died and rose again. That we ought to indeed share with the world that there is hope, not by doing good, not by having to accomplish everything, not by having to uh, uh, bear up under the weight of the demand of success. But there is life here in the church 
for all in their brokenness and misery. Because Jesus Christ is sufficient for us all. And His grace is what saves. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is sometimes tempting for us to think that salvation by faith is a nice idea that we pay lip service to, but is not a truth that we live by. Because in the end, Lord, we too think our success is our own. We too tend to be proud and defensive when our sins are exposed. And we too, Lord, have a hard time admitting that we need this Jesus Christ. When we're talking to our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends who don't know you, who don't love you. Instead, Lord, help us to own our identity as believers. Help us to own our identity as sons and daughters of Abraham. And help us not be ashamed of the fact that we believe. And help us to say, let me tell you what my God has done and why I trust Him so deeply, so profoundly that I will never let Him go. So bless us each and every one, Lord, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.